Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I am pleased to bring to you the third aliyah of the Sidrat, or Parshat, of Pinchas, for the OU Shnayim Mikra Project. And the Lord commanded Moshe, divide up the land into for these, meaning according to these tribes, as a property inheritance, according to the count of names, meaning probably according to the number that are in the sub-tribes, the mishpachot. So the larger population increased their property, and to the fewer in population decreased their property, each person, according to his census number, will receive property. But let it let the land be divided up, apportioned in lots, according to the name of the tribal fathers, they will inherit it. According to the lots, the lands will be divided between the many and the few, or perhaps be they many or be they few. And therein lies the famous dispute in regarding this section. According to Rashi, based on a rabbinic opinion, which the Ramban points out is rejected, but Rashi goes with it anyway, each tribal plot, each of the 12 divisions of property, was sized based on the headcount of that tribe. That is, larger tribes got larger portions of land. Smaller tribes, that is, ones with fewer number, got smaller portions of land. Now, of course, not all the land was equal. One uh, portion of fertile land, for instance, might be equal to five portions of the same size of arid, unworkable land. Rashi cites this wonderful little medrash, or big medrash as the case may be, um, which is notices the redundance of the fact that the land needs to be divided up by a lottery, by lots. And he uh, mentions that the Kohanim would actually have two lots, one with the names of the tribes and one with the names of the territories. And the lot, once picked, would animate itself and call out, This, I guess this wooden stick would call out the name of the tribe that it belonged to. The point of the Medrash, I think, is that the land sizes and the locations were already sort of predetermined. That is, they knew where Yehuda was going to be, they knew where uh, Asher was going to be, um, which is sort of indicated based on the blessings in Zotah Bracha, uh, and based on the size of the tribe, you had to have a certain amount of property, especially according to Rashi, where the larger tribes got larger pieces of property. Ah, but how would you keep people from saying that Joshua set the whole thing up, it was all sort of uh, fixed, so he would put his name in the lottery, and the lottery would call out its name in public uh, to tell everybody that things were fair and square. Of course, the lottery calling out the name reminds me a little bit of the sorting hat in the, Perry, in the Harry Potter story. Now, according to the Ramban, what this section is saying is that each tribe received the exact same amount of property. That is, the portions of the land were divided into 12 equal parts. The instruction here regarding the larger and the smaller is not referring to the tribe, but is referring to the mishpachot, to the subfamilies in the tribes, that the subregions would be apportioned in size based on the families leaving Egypt. And therefore, even though the family may have been reduced or increased in size, based on uh, changes of population between the first generation and the second generation, that is, even though, for instance, the Jews out of Egypt may have had five families and the Jews coming into Israel would have ten families, it would follow the divisions and therefore the sizes 
of the families based on the ones leaving Egypt. But the, it's not the size of the overall tribal lands that was different. It was the, tr- the subdivision of the equally apportioned tribal lands. It's the subtribes that would go based on the number. Now, looking at a map, I tend to lean towards uh, Rashi's view, but those are the two primary views of how to understand this little section. And now, in chapter 26, verse 57, we get to the Levim, who did not get a portion of land in Israel. However, they're no doubt mentioned here, first of all, because it's important to count them, and second of all, because they still received cities in the Promised Land, and of course they had uh, duties to be performed in the Promised Land as well. So first the Torah mentions uh, Levi's, uh, Levi's three sons who were alive before they went down to Egypt. And now come the grandchildren, or specifically some of the grandchildren, uh, more or less one, although not exactly per per a uh, major subsection. Elam Shpot Levi, Mishpachar Halivni, Mishpachar Hevroni, Mishpachar Machli, Mishpachar Mushi, Mishpachar Korchi, Ukahat Halid et Amram. Livni was the son of Gershom, so that's one Mishpacha. Hevron was the son of Kahat, so that's the Kahat Mishpacha. Machli and Mushi were both the sons of Mirari, so I guess combined together they represent the Mirari's next generation. So each one of the tribes sort of is represented as a family, not only in their own division, but a division of their children as well, or, or a single primary child. Uh, or in the case of Merari, two children, uh, perhaps the numbers they needed to be together to form a sizable enough family. In any event, uh, Korach apparently is mentioned, Mishpachat Korchi here is mentioned, um, to probably, to, to emphasize that even though their father Korach, that is the son of Yitzhar, this Korach really shouldn't be mentioned here, he's a grandson of Levi, not a son, and Yitzhar is not mentioned, uh, is not mentioned at all. Hevron really represents Kat. But Korach has probably mentioned that he, because even though he dies, the Torah wants to point out that his family, his children, were indeed given a portion of land because they did not die with their father's uh, rebellion. They continue to live on in Israel. And now we uh, move a little bit away from Levi to the Kohanic part of the family, uh, or I should say we subsection Levi into the Kohanic part, which is that Kahat gave birth to Amram. And then Vishem Eishin Amram Yochevet Bat Levi, Asher Yalada Utal Levi Mitzrayim, Batel Amram et Aharon, Ve Moshe, Ve Miriam, Achotam. Yochevet, born to Levi uh, in Egypt, marries her nephew, her brother Kahat's son, Amram, and has Aaron, Moshe, and their sister Miriam. Aaron had four kids, but Nadav and Avihu died because they brought an inappropriate fire before God, meaning into the Kodesh in front of the Parochet. I explained that issue in detail back in Sefer Vayikra, so probably here is not the place to go into it at this time. And now we return to the census of the Levi tribe, although the difference uh, between this census and the general census is that here it counts for a one month old, not from 20 years old, males. Which were not included in the general Israelite census since they did not get a property inheritance among with the uh, Israelites. And now we sum up the overall counting, that is the general census as well as the Levitic census, as follows: This is the count made by Moses and Elazar the Kohen, 
who counted the Israelites on the Moabite crossings of the Jordan River. Among these, meaning uh, the general Israelite census, as we'll see, not the, the not the Levitical census, there was no one who was also listed in the census that Moshe and Aaron uh, the Kohen took in the Sinai Desert, meaning the one they had done 39 years earlier in Generation 1. That's because the general census only included 20-year-olds uh, 20 and older, and all the 20-year-olds and older, uh, God had commanded that they should all die, and not one was left over except for Kalev, the son of Yifuneh, and Yehoshua, the son of Nun. Following the census, the daughters of Slavchad, who must not have received an apportioned piece of land, approach Moshe. Chapter 27, verse 1. And they, that is Machla, Noah, Chagla, Milka, and Tirza, the children of Tzlovchad, who has a long line of, of Yichos, stretching all the way back to Menashe, the son of Yosef, um, they they stand up before Moshe and Elazar the Kohen and the tribal leaders and the entire congregation, which really doesn't mean all hundreds of thousands, just the primary leaders, the representatives in front of the Mishkan and say. The implication is that they are demanding a court case and they want it to be fully adjudicated in public and before God. And this is their case. Avinu meit bamidbar. V'hu lo haya v'toch ha'ida ha'noadim al Adonai ba'ada korach. Ki b'chet'o meit. Uvanim lo hayulo, lama yigarashe mavinu mitok mishpachto, kein lo ben, tina lanu achuza betocha cheavinu. Our father died in the desert, but he was not amongst the assembly who assembled against the Lord in Korach, with Korach's assembly. Rather, he died due to his own sins, and he didn't have any sons. So why should the name of our father be deleted from his family? Just because he has no sons, Give us a holding that is an apportionment of land among our kinsmen. Now, the details are critical here of what they say, and we'll have to assume that each word that they state is carefully stated in order to make their case. But before we examine the details of the case, it appears that Moshe does not know what the ruling should be. So, Moshe submits their case before the Lord. Now, let's go back to the case. And the first thing I would like to assert, and I strongly suggest that you challenge my assertions. Feel free to disagree. There are a lot of commentaries here with a lot of different opinions on exactly what was the girl's beef and what was it that Moshe did not know and what was it that God wanted. But I'm going to assert that the issue is not the matter of whether daughters in general inherit from their father in the absence of brothers. That is not what God is introducing at this moment. It's, one should not believe that somehow God never expected that the issue would come up that a family would have only daughters and no sons. And one should not expect it that, that, uh, that it's very unlikely that Salafchad is the only one who has no remaining sons, only, only daughters. Yes, it's true that the law regarding inheritance and who inherits and when the daughters inherit when there are no sons, it is here stated in the text in the following Aliyah, that is in the very next section, which I'll read tomorrow. But that doesn't mean that it was given here uh, only after. That is, That doesn't mean that God only 
told the law after Tzlovchad asked their, after Tzlovchad's daughters asked their question. The law was, like all other laws, given at Har Sinai or at the bottom of the mountain, right under Har Sinai. It's not only this law in the book of Bimidbar, which is so. Every law in the book of Bimidbar, which is here, is only here to connect it with the story, to add something to the story or the law or both. All of the laws in Bimidbar were given 39 years ago. God did not wait 39 years to say what the Torah demands, what his Torah demands of the people regarding inheritance. And that's true of all these laws. Tzitzit is given in Bimidbar. That doesn't mean that God waited around to give it. Isha Sotan, Nazir, laws of Nadarim, all of it. All of these laws are not mentioned in Bimidbar because that's where they were actually given, but they're mentioned here because it's connected to a story to shed light on the story or on the application of the law uh, via means of the uh, of the story. And that's why the next Aliyah, even though it opens up with, the Lord says to Moshe, the daughters of Slavchad have spoken correctly, but then right afterwards when it details the laws... It says, Israel to more. And by the way, speak to the children of Israel saying, which means the issue of Tzlovchad inheriting, Tzlovchad's daughters inheriting the land is one thing. And while we're on the topic, I'm going to recall the laws that I gave regarding inheritance in general. That is, we sort of time warp back 39 years to when God originally gave the laws. And if you look at the Psukim, and I'll mention it tomorrow, you'll see that there are really two different sections. One regarding with how to deal with Slavchad's daughter's issues, another one to deal with inheritance. The inheritance is a general rule, well known, and the question is not how inheritance are broken up, but does Slavchad deserve an inheritance at all? Um... Again, I, I mean, to, to see it any other way is very difficult. To assume that Moshe didn't know basic laws of inheritance is very unlikely. To assume that Slavka was the first family without any daughters in 39 years is very unlikely. And most importantly, if it was just a question of inheritance, the daughters would not have gone into detail regarding exactly what was and what was not their father's sin. It's clear that that makes all the difference and not the issue of whether they're girls or not girls. So let's examine what they say. Now, there are a lot of opinions, as I mentioned, regarding the different portions of the case that they present. Each opinion tends to focus on one part, tends to ignore another part, to try to figure out exactly what the girls were trying to get across. Uh, Ibn Ezra even cites Rabbi Huda Halevi's opinion, which is kind of exciting to get, uh, you know, because most of his opinions that we're going to are not recorded down, and only when the Ibn Ezra occasionally quotes him do we find out uh, what he had to say about the Torah. Um, however, if I went through each opinion, it would take too long. And again, I strongly suggest that you look them all up. But I will stick to my opinion, and uh, hopefully you'll like it. Um, here it is. Korach's sin led to, that is Korach, not Slavchad. Korach's sin led not only to his death and to the death of the people with him, but to a loss of any inheritance in the land of Israel. And I mentioned that in Aliyah 2, because that explained why, why, why in the middle of a sentence we bothered focusing on Datan Vaviran, who lost their inheritance along with the children of, uh, with the, with the assembly of, uh, of Korach, um, in the sins that they were involved with together. Even though they had two separate rebellions, they were tied together and they lost their inheritance. The reason why Datan and Aviram are mentioned there is, and the children of Korach is because Datan and Aviram did lose their inheritance in the land of Israel. If they had any existing children, they were not apportioned out any land. And Korach's children, even though their father did lose his inheritance, the children of Korach did not. That is really Korach continued his inheritance in the land of Israel, but only because of the righteousness of his sons. 
Now, of course, in the other, there are other sins where that is, it's not only Korach's sin and the rebellion against God and Moshe, and Datan and Aviran's sin and the rebellion against Moshe, which causes one to lose a portion of the land of Israel. The Meraglim, of course, by rejecting the land of Israel, everybody lost their inheritance, but it was picked up by the next generation, by generation two. But Korach's sin, where one might not think that it's connected to Israel, although with Datan Aviram it's more obvious because they, they say they don't want to go to Israel, they want to go back to the land of Egypt. But Korach's sin is a rejection of Moshe's uniqueness in his ability to correctly convey God's law, which means when Moshe says, time to go to Israel and it's a land of flowing milk and honey, the minute that you question any part of Moshe's rightness when it comes to how to worship God and how God wants to be worshipped, you really lose out on everything, including the property of the land of Israel. So Tzlavchad, the daughters say, did sin, even though the sin is not mentioned, a point to which I will return to in a second. But his sin was a private one. He did not sin as part of a rebellion, a gathering, an assembly against God or against Moshe. He sinned. He was a private sinner. He was an individual sinner. And as I will, I will try to show, that doesn't mean that he's trying to reject God or have a big, big fight against who's supposed to leave Israel. He sinned because he sinned. And therefore, the daughters are claiming that because it was simply a one-man sin, as bad as it may have been, it does not rate loss of a portion of the land of Israel, and therefore, they should inherit it as well. Now, if Tzlovchad had had a son who was alive when he sinned, so even though Tzlovchad might have lost inheritance of the land of Israel, the, the, the son would still have it. But since he had no son to inherit a portion of land, and because Tzlovchad died by sinning, the daughters are trying to say, listen, that sin was only an individual sin, and therefore he should not have a portion of land taken away from him. If he does, then he will have no future because we're just girls, and therefore the property isn't divided up by us. And therefore, if we could prove that our father did not lose the land of Israel, then using the regular inheritance rights, we get the land of Israel as well. It's like the difference between being anti-religious and just being not religious. Do you commit a sin because you're trying to go out of your way to eat uh, pita on Pesach to prove something about uh, religion and about your position? Or you just guy who likes, uh, likes shrimp. What are you going to do? Now, what happens, therefore, is it makes a lot of sense that Moshe has to check with God because this is not an issue of whether he sinned or didn't sin. This is an issue of whether the type of sin rates loss of the land of Israel. The daughters say it does not, and Moshe doesn't know. So he has to go to God, and God comes back and says, listen, the daughters are right. It does not rate the loss of the land of Israel. It is not a rebellion like Korah's, a gathering of people, a conspiracy, and therefore they, the daughters, still get to live in my land because the father did not lose his inheritance to it. And now I think it's important to mention uh, the famous argument regarding what exactly the sin was. Um, the Torah doesn't tell us, so the rabbis have a dispute. Rabbi Yosef says, uh, argues with Rabbi Kiva. Rabbi Yosef says that it was the, the sin of the Ma'apilim. He was with the Ma'apilim. And Rabbi Kiva says, no, it wasn't the Ma'apilim. It was the Mekoshesh Eitzim. I'm going to explain that in a second, and I want to show you that they're not just plucking a historical, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not just plucking sins out for the sake of plucking sins out. There's an incredible depth 
And there is a fundamental, fundamental theological dispute between Rabbi Yosef and Rabbi Akiva. They're not just arguing about whether he was X or Y. They're arguing about whether sin X or sin Y is heinous enough to lose the land of Israel. And now let's talk about what they say the sin was. Rabbi Yosef said it was the Ma'apilim. Now the Ma'apilim were the ones who after the Miraglim, after the sin of the Miraglim, all the Jews were said, you can't go to Israel because you rebelled against God. You didn't listen to God. So the, now the Ma'apilim, and you're all going to die in the desert. So the Ma'apilim, they all said, you know, we're sorry, we're terribly sorry, we goof, we're now going to go into the land of Israel. Now we're Zionists, we're now going to go. And Moshe said, no, you're not allowed to go anymore. God is not with you. You won't survive. I'm commanding you now not to go to the land of Israel, just like I commanded you two days ago to go to the land of Israel. And they said, oh, no, we're going to go. They reject Moshe again. They go to the land of Israel, and they got smeared because God wasn't with them. So, Rabbi, that's what Rabbi Yosef says. Rabbi Akiva says it was the Makoshesh Eitzim, which is either a wood gatherer or a wood chopper on Shabbat. Famous story in the Torah that Moshe, again, another situation, Moshe did not know how to deal with it. And God says that that wood chopper, wood gatherer, must die. So now let's take a look at the depth that's behind this dispute between Rabbi Yosef and Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Yosef is saying as follows. The people who sinned as the Ma'apilim, they disobeyed God, and they did it in mass. But since they did it in an effort to Ma'apil, to make Aliyah, to go to the Holy Land, and since this demonstrates their Zionism and their desire to be in the Holy Land, therefore, because it's that specific sin of the desire to go to the land of Israel, even though they were doing it in a sinful way, they don't deserve to lose their land rights in Israel. In fact, they deserve specifically to be in Israel because their sin was a sin of... Zionism, in a strange way. Rabbi Akiva is saying no. Rabbi Akiva is saying, if you go against God's instructions not to, when, when God tells you not to go to Israel, that's just as bad as when God tells you to go to Israel and you refuse there. That is, there's no difference between a, being a Ma'apil and a Maragel. Whether you're saying, I'm not going to listen to God and go to Israel, or whether you're going to say, I'm not going to listen to God and not go to Israel, it's a rejection of God, and therefore you reject the land of Israel as well. But if you th- so therefore, what is Rabbi Akiva's statement? He says he's a Mekoshei Shetzim. Now, if you remember, there's one other story of Mekoshei Shetzim in the Torah. There are only two stories of Mekoshei Shetzim. One is the case in Chumash, where Moshe is told to put the man to death for the break of Shabbat. And the other one is where Eliyahu Navi and Malachim Alf is told to run away from King Ahab, because King Ahab wants to kill him because of the famine. And he runs away. The famine is so bad, he runs away to a city called Sorfat, which is on the Lebanon, which is in modern-day Lebanon. And he finds this woman who is so poor that she says she is about to die. And she is Mikoshe Shetzim. She's chopping or gathering wood so she can make a little tiny fire and cook a last handful of dough so she can give it to her son and herself before she dies of starvation. So what Rabbi Akiva is saying is as follows. And, and, and what Moshe doesn't know is as follows. That Mekoshesh Eitzim in the Torah, just like the woman who's Mekoshesh Eitzim over by Eliyahu, is not doing it because they're trying to rebel against God. They're doing it because they're hungry. They're doing it because they're cold. That is, the statement of the Mekoshesh Eitzim in the Torah is, is, he's not saying Shabbat's a waste of time and we're going to reject God and do whatever we want on Shabbat. What he's saying is, okay, I understand it's Shabbat, but I'm cold and I'm hungry and I'm going to go burn some wood. I'm going to go chop some wood and burn some fire. 
So what Moshe didn't know was something that Moshe really couldn't know. What happens when a person is not rebelling against God is not breaking Shabbat to rebel against religion, which is clear that the person should be put to death. That's a death penalty sin. But what happens when a person is not rebelling against God? He just doesn't want to keep Shabbat. Should he be put to death? Or do his actions not constitute a death penalty sin that a rebellion against God and God's laws would? And God comes back to Moshe. And that's something that Moshe wouldn't know. And God comes back and says, listen, I feel bad about it. And you're right, it's not the same level of sin when a person is mekosheshetim as when he is uh, uh, refusing to uh, to listen to what I'm commanding them to do uh, in spite of me, to spite me. But nonetheless, a person who breaks on Shabbat on purpose after having been warned that he's not allowed to do so, he pays the price. What are you going to do? It's sad, but he's a sinner and he breaks Shabbat and Shabbat is important and it's a death penalty sin. So what is Rabbi Kiva saying here? Rabbi Kiva is saying, I don't agree with, in my opinion, of what Rabbi Kiva is saying. Of course, none of this is stated. I'm just extrapolating because I don't believe that Rabbi Kiva and Rabbi Rabbi Yosef are having a a, a simplistic argument on what the sin of Tzlavcha was. I believe what they're saying is follows. Rabbi Yosef is saying he was a Zionist. So even though he rejected God, he he gets to keep his portion of Israel. And Rabbi Kiva says, no, it doesn't work that way. A person who rejects God rejects the land of Israel because the two go together. But a person who is not excluding himself from God, he's not excluding himself from the Jewish people, he's not excluding himself from the Jewish mission, that's not what Slavcha did. He committed a sin, like people do. He drove on Shabbat. He decided to cook food on Shabbat. He did whatever he wanted to do, not because he hated God or hated Israel, but because he sins like people sin. That person deserves to be punished. But he does not deserve to lose his connection with the Jewish people, nor with the Jewish land. He gets to keep the land of Israel, and since he's not around to keep the land of Israel, nor does he have any sons too easily apportioned to the land of Israel, the daughters will continue his birthright to live in the land of Israel.